This week, I'm answering your questions about laparoscopic compared to traditional spay surgery in dogs. I'm then moving on to tracheal collapse in a Yorkshire Terrier. What's the best way to treat that if we can't go for surgery? And then finally, which flea treatment is best to use in your cat if they get an infestation? But before we get into all those things, here's the intro. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode number 22 of the show that tackles any dog or cat health questions that you throw at me. I'm Dr. Alex. I'm the vet behind ourpetshealth.com, and it's my pleasure to have you with me this week as I've got three fantastic questions to take you through. Before we get into them, though, if you're a new listener and you enjoy what you hear, then be sure to subscribe and also make sure that you submit any questions that you have over at dralexanswers.com for a chance to have your question featured on an upcoming episode soon. And my very first question today is from Katka, who says, is a laparoscopic spay better than regular spaying in a dog? So a regular spay involves making an incision, a cut into the abdomen of a dog to manually remove either the ovaries alone, and that's something that we call an ovariectomy, or the ovaries and the uterus. And that's a procedure we know as an ovariohysterectomy. Now, it doesn't really matter which one we do in the sense that the end result is the same. So we remove the ability to get pregnant, we remove the risk of pyometra, and we have all of the other risks and benefits of a space surgery. And I've discussed that in a separate article that I'll actually leave a link to in the show notes today. So in a traditional spay, incision size actually varies. So the, the the wound on your dog does vary. And that depends on what type of surgery your dog's undergoing. It depends on the size of your dog and the body condition of your dog as well. So are they thin, which means we'll need really a smaller incision or are they quite fat and overweight in which case we'll often need to make a larger incision just because there's so much fat in the way and we need to see what we're doing and handle the tissue appropriately and it's also going to vary based on surgeons so uh, a younger graduate is going to have a larger incision than an older graduate well that's likely to be the case but really surgeon uh, a preference if you like can vary quite remarkably but in general there's going to be around a three inch incision made into your dog in a traditional regular spay the ovaries and uterus they're then clamped off and suture material ligature is used to then close off the blood supply so that we stop any bleeding we remove the likelihood of any bleeding before we make our cut to remove the ovaries and the uterus if we're removing the uterus as well now let's compare that to a laparoscopic spay so they that's what we call minimally invasive it involves one to three and this is going to again depend on the technique and the preference of the surgeon but it's going to involve one to three small half inch incisions into the body wall that then goes into the abdomen Carbon dioxide is then used to inflate the abdomen, so that helps to separate um, all of the organs for visualisation with a camera, and the camera and the instruments are passed through those small incisions, and the surgery is done like that. So a screen is used by the surgeon to perform the surgery to see what they're doing, so the camera is um, is then fed through onto a television screen, and the surgeon's hands never actually enter the abdomen. And rather than a, a ligature made with suture material, actually electroquartery is used to seal the blood vessels that then stops the bleeding. And also in a laparoscopic spay, only the ovaries are removed. And this is potentially important as I'll come on to later. So there are going to be 
some clear benefits of a laparoscopic spay in dogs. We're going to have a smaller incision. So in a traditional spay, we have a three-inch incision compared to one to three much smaller incisions. It's been shown that this is going to be less painful. So it may be that a dog feels actually up to 65% less pain than they would do with a traditional spay. And they're going to have a faster recovery because they're going to be more comfortable. Um, they're going to have a faster recovery. There's also a lower complication rate with laparoscopic space compared to a traditional space. So in one study, there were around 20% of complications with a laparoscopic spay compared to 40% of dogs exhibiting complications with a traditional spay. The thing to mention here though is that complications really were mainly inflammation which actually required no further treatment. So this then goes back to the faster recovery time. Really we're more likely to get a complication if you like, be it a little inflammation around the wound with a traditional spay compared to a laparoscopic spay. So the other thing was minor surgical site infections. There was a slight increased risk of that in a traditional spay um, and slight delays in wound healing, but none of these needed any major treatment. Other complications that we saw frequently between the two groups and were the same in both groups was diarrhea and maybe a little bit of vomiting. And that was, like I say, the same. And that's likely due to the anaesthetic um, and the pain medication given rather than the surgical technique as such. And then severe complications, they are really very, very rare in both groups groups but the one big potential complication with a traditional spay is that that little suture material ligature that we place has the potential to slip if it's not been placed tight enough um, if the clamp wasn't well placed before it was tied whereas with the laparoscopic spay we're using um, electricity effectively to seal that blood vessel so there's no potential for slippage. Now I should say that that's really a very uncommon side effect but it is a potential risk or a risk with the surgery. It's very uncommon risk with that traditional spay but it is a risk nonetheless. So what are the downsides though of a laparoscopic spay compared to a traditional spay in dogs? Well they're more expensive understandably so the training that needs to go on is quite extensive uh, and it's nothing like anything else we do if we're not used to using laparoscopic equipment which most general practitioners won't be before before they start undertaking laparoscopic space and also the equipment that we need is much more expensive than for a traditional space so a traditional space just uses very simple hand instruments but a laparoscopic space does require quite kind of complicated expensive kit now also with a laparoscopic spay, if we do get a problem during surgery, then we're likely going to need to convert into a traditional open spay because you can't deal with any bleeding or any complications with the laparoscopic equipment. You need to kind of open up traditionally using your hands as normal surgery would. Um, laparoscopic spay also can't be carried out if there's a uterine infection present if there is any other uterine pathology as well so if there's cancer of the uterus now that's not going to be likely in a young dog but if you've got an older dog you're looking at spaying then really a laparoscopic spay procedure potentially isn't the best thing for them and it's also more challenging in small dogs less than about five kilograms so again in much smaller dogs it's likely that a traditional spay is is always going to be the best uh the, the best solution and the best technique to use so overall that are benefits of a laparoscopic spay compared to a traditional spay in dogs but really it's important to remember that safety is really very high in both procedures and it likely relates more to surgeon experience um, you know incision size also varies by surgeon experience will impact which will impact post-op comfort as well and by and large a traditional spay our dogs they're still pretty comfortable and they're up and running very very quickly considering how serious that surgery is so 
yeah, a laparoscopic spay is probably the superior technique in a lot of dogs, but traditional spay is safe. Like I say, the post-op comfort levels do tend to be good and recovery is still rapid in most cases. So if it's not available in your area or if the, the cost is too high, then I would have no qualms at all with carrying out a traditional spay as we have done for years and years. And in fact, no practices that I've ever worked in have offered a laparoscopic spay. I think it will become more common, but at the time, for the time being, it is you know quite a niche procedure and it's not done by the majority of vet clinics you're listening to the dr alex answers show and then before i jump into the next question i just wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by the knowledge vault so that's the one place to access all of my free resources which include checklists condition guides drug sheets calculators and ebooks so just get access today for free simply by heading over to rpetshealth.com slash resources Question number two is from Lydia, who writes, please, what's the treatment for trachea collapse? My Yorkie cannot be operated on since she's almost 13 years old. So really, how can we treat tracheal collapse in dogs without surgery? So we'll start off by saying, what is tracheal collapse? Because it's maybe not what this dog's got in the first place. It's something to consider. So tracheal collapse, it's a progressive condition where the large airways, so the airway that kind of the main airway that you can feel in the neck, uh, goes from being a round cylinder to becoming compressed and flattened. It can progress so much that, in fact, the tube, effectively, it becomes completely blocked. It's just squashed so flat. So it's most common in older, small breed dogs. So uh, a 13-year-old Yorkie certainly fits the bill there. Um, but also toy poodles, Pomeranians, Chihuahuas and Pugs are commonly affected with this, or they're the breed that are most commonly affected with this, I should say. So it results in noisy breathing. Tracheal collapse causes cough and that can actually sound like a goose honk. It can cause heavy breathing. It can cause difficulty breathing and that can then lead to collapse and even hypothermia. So dogs really struggling to breathe, their muscles are having to work hard and so their body temperature can rise and that can be really dangerous as well. And you know that's what tracheal collapse is but what are the causes well we don't really know so there's likely a genetic component um, but the environment plays a huge role as well so uh, an obese dog so obesity plays a big risk and that can have a big impact which i'll discuss later when it comes to treatment but also pollutants so if there's lots of smoke in the environment environmental allergens can cause problems especially with chronic bronchitis which can then exacerbate tracheal collapse and then kennel cough as well can cause a deterioration in tracheal collapse in small dogs. But not all small coughing dogs are going to be suffering from this condition. So it's important that we do get a proper diagnosis. And really the way that we do this is imaging. So um, you know, imaging is not always straightforward. So x-rays are the very kind of first step. They're the easiest thing. They're the cheapest thing, but they're actually not very good at picking up the problem. And actually one in four positive cases on x-rays. So for one in every four dogs where we think we've got this condition will actually be wrong. It's also not particularly sensitive. So there'll be a proportion of dogs which are diagnosed as negative for tracheal collapse, which actually do have the condition when we're relying on x-rays alone. The best way to do it, we do something called fluoroscopy which is like a real-time x-ray on a tv screen so it's an x-ray kind of um in in motion rather than just taking a static picture and then bronchoscopy which is passing a a tube with a camera down into the airways to actually have a look at what their shape they're better they're more sensitive but they're also more expensive potentially more risky because we might be needing anesthetics certainly in the case of bronchoscopy bronchoscopy we're going to need to have our patient anesthetized and that carries risks as well and it's also not readily available 
in every clinic and certainly in every part of the world. So the good news for Lydia is that most cases of tracheal collapse in small dogs are managed medically with about a 70% success rate. So the chances are that this dog will recover with medical treatment compared to not recover at all. The mainstays of treatment are anti-coughing medication. So that can be things like codeine or hydrocodone. We give steroids to reduce the inflammation um, in the airway, which uh, is we, we give a higher dose to start with and then we'll gradually taper down that dose to try and reduce it to the lowest level that works. And if you're interested in steroids in general, then check out the show notes for a link to a complete review of steroids in dogs. Now, inflammation as well results in more mucus being produced and that increases the risk of infection. So antibiotics are often administered especially at the start of treatment and may be needed intermittently afterwards as well. Bronchodilators is another thing that may help. So bronchodilators are drugs that open up the smaller airways. So they like I say, open up the smaller areas. It may have very little effect on the trachea itself, so the large airway, but if it's going to help with a concurrent bronchitis, which is an inflammation lower down in the airway, that's going to reduce coughing. Uh, it's going to help with the treatment of tracheal collapse. Antihistamines may also make a small difference in some dogs. And then we've got non-drug treatment, as I suggested at the beginning. Weight loss is essential if your dog is overweight, and we're in the middle of an obesity epidemic in our pets. Over about 60% of dogs are over overweight or obese so the chances are weight loss is going to make a huge difference we should also try and reduce environmental allergens so reduce any smoke and dust in the environment where possible and then finally use a harness rather than a collar because that's going to reduce any pressure around the throat and so reduce coughing and reduce inflammation in that area i really like the julius canine uh, canine harnesses but there are plenty of other ones out there as well now in this case uh, surgery isn't an option but in some dogs that really is an option so a stent then is ideal if medical management fails and what a stent is it's a, a titanium alloy mesh tube that's actually placed inside the trachea so after it's placed it expands to hold the trachea open and to prevent that collapse now cost here is going to be an issue experience of placing these stents are an issue they're not a common thing that's that, that, that that's uh, implanted in every practice it's generally a specialist procedure there is about a 10% mortality rate within 60 days of the procedure being carried out. So it's not risk-free, but those dogs that do do well, that, that that go on to do well and survive, really do do very well in general. There are other complications like the stent breaking um, or migrating, so shifting. Um, you can get tracheal rupture and you can also get collapse of the non-stented areas. But stenting, you know, is a good fallback kind of position if medical management fails and it's appropriate for your dog and it's available in your area. And then just remember that the information that I give in these podcast episodes, it's not a substitute for a consultation and an examination with your pet's veterinarian and really should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet. If your pet's unwell, if they're injured, if they're suffering from any kind of problem or you're worried about anything at all, then talking to your vet is always going to be the best course of action. Get your question answered at dralexanswers.com. And then my final question today is from Caitlin, who says that she's trying to figure out which flea medicine she should use on her cat. She lives in Florida and she's got cats that are both indoors 
and outdoors. She's tried multiple different medications in the past and they've just not worked. She did like using Capstar, but apparently that only works for 24 hours, um, if she's not mistaken. And she'd like something that lasts longer if possible. She is a little bit scared to try new medications because she knows somebody whose cat had a seizure from one and that led to his head being permanently cocked to one side. So what would I recommend um, for Caitlin's cats to treat fleas and to prevent fleas more importantly? So really, what do we want from our flea treatment well the ideal flea treatment should be effective it should kill fleas with no resistance being present it should be safe it should persist for the entire inter-treatment interval it should also be easier to administer and flea treatment really should treat any additional parasites that might be needed in that individual cat so you know there's lots and lots of different products out there can't possibly cover them all and they all do slightly different things but certainly ones that i think we should be considering are um fipronil products so that's things like frontline that's an older drug it used to be very effective and in some areas it still is very very effective but there are regional resistance problems so in some areas it's completely ineffective um or it might work a little bit but not for as long or it needs to be given more frequently so you know i I think a a lot of in a lot of cases especially where there is a high flea population then fipronil products aren't the best now we could use something like advantage so that's an active ingredient of imidacloprid so that's safe it's an effective flea only product so it only kills the adult fleas but it does that job very, very well. We could then have something with selamectin. So that would be products like Revolution or Stronghold. They're also very effective against adults. Um, They do a very good job. They've got the added benefit of also being effective against the eggs and larvae in the environment. So they're going to be better if there's already an infestation because it's going to reduce the environmental burden of fleas Um, also if there's a high risk of fleas or if the cat has flea allergic dermatitis we really want to knock out all fleas as as best we can to reduce the population in the environment like i say so something like revolution or stronghold is going to be ideal here now if we want something that also covers ticks lice and intestinal roundworms and heartworm then this drug does that as well it also has a smaller volume which you know isn't maybe going to benefit how well it works but it's a preference for some owners and also some cats prefer a smaller volume to be applied they don't have such a reaction to it if they don't like having things applied to their skin then another solution would be something called brevecto that's a spot on that lasts for three months and that does fleas and ticks and then finally we can think about a seresto collar so that's a collar that is uh, uh, that, that, that sits on there for seven to eight months and it just slowly releases the active ingredients and prevents fleas and kills ticks for that long period of time so that's the longest thing that we can apply which is going to be great if your cat is accepting of a collar without losing it because they do although they 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 are very secure and they don't generally get lost they do have a breakaway safety feature so if your cat is a real big explorer maybe that there's a higher risk of them losing that collar now a couple of things to mention here so capstar is something that was mentioned now that is very effective at very quickly killing fleas that are on the cat when it's as is administered because it's a tablet but it really has no persistence so that's correct it only lasts for about 24 hours program is another flea treatment that some people use which is often actually a poor choice in most 
those cats. So this is an injection that lasts for about six months and it actually sterilizes the adult flea. So um, it can be used to break her flea life cycle, but you need to wait for all of the eggs and larvae in the environment to hatch out, to develop into adult fleas before feeding and then dying of natural causes. So that's not going to be good for outdoor cats or for those that suffer from a flea allergic dermatitis where just one bite can set them off and give them severe itchiness and severe skin allergies. So really program would only be good for indoor cats that are in more urban environments where there's a lower flea risk and a low risk of you bringing fleas into the house. So the best flea treatment for your cat is going to depend on their lifestyle. It's going to depend on the local parasite risk, the ease of application or administration. And really this is something to chat to your vet team about. And then if we think about side effects of flea treatment, you need to be aware that anything that you give your cat carries the risk of side effects. No matter how small that risk is, there's generally no getting away from from that. No matter what product you use, if it's doing something, there is going to be the risk of side effects. One thing that I wonder from the description here, um, and, and certainly it's important noting, never use a dog product on a cat because some of them actually can very quickly kill them. So always use a cat-only product unless you're specifically advised otherwise by your veterinarian. You know, there are some tragic cases of pets suffering from very rare but serious side effects. But if you're jumping online, it's worth also bearing in mind that some of the reports really need to be taken with a hefty pinch of salt. So, you know, talk to your vet team about the recommendations for your individual cat based on their lifestyle and your specific area. And then that's it for this episode of the podcast. I'd love it if you could let me know your thoughts over in the show notes or on social media. So you can find me on Facebook, uh, Pets Health TV, um, on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle is at Pets Health. Um, and also be sure to subscribe. And if you do have a spare couple of minutes, I'd love it if you could leave me a review over on iTunes or over at rpetshealth.com slash review, just to help more people discover this podcast and allow me to help more pets. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers.